Chapter One of the Dealings of Captain Sharkey and Other Stories of Pirates by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The Dealings of Captain Sharkey and Other Stories of Pirates by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Part One, Tales of Pirates. Chapter One, Captain Sharkey. How the governor of St. Kitts came home. When the great wars of the Spanish succession had been brought to an end by the Treaty of Utrecht, the vast number of privateers which had been fitted out by the contending parties found their occupation gone. Some took to the more peaceful but less lucrative ways of ordinary commerce. Others were absorbed into the fishing fleets, and a few of the more reckless hoisted Jolly Roger at the mizzen and the bloody flag at the main, declaring a private war on their own account against the whole human race. With mixed crews recruited from every nation, they scoured the seas, disappearing occasionally to careen in some lonely inlet, or putting in for a debauch at some outlaying port, where they dazzled the inhabitants by their lavishness and horrified them by their brutalities. On the Coromandel coast, at Madagascar, in the African waters, and above all in the West Indian and American seas, the pirates were a constant menace. With an insolent luxury they would regulate their depredations by the comfort of the seasons, harrying New England in the summer, and dropping south again to the tropical islands in the winter. They were the more to be dreaded because they had none of that discipline and restraint which made their predecessors, the buccaneers, both formidable and respectable. These Ishmaels of the sea rendered an account to no man, and treated their prisoners according to the drunken whim of the moment. Flashes of grotesque generosity alternated with longer stretches of inconceivable ferocity, and the skipper who fell into their hands might find himself dismissed with his cargo after serving as boon companion in some hideous debauch or might sit at his cabin table with his own nose and his lips served up with pepper and salt in front of him it took a stout seaman in those days to ply his calling in the caribbean gulf such a man was captain john scarrow of the ship morning star and yet he breathed a long sigh of relief when he heard the splash of the falling anchor and swung at his moorings within a hundred yards of the guns of the citadel of bastere st kitts was his final port of call and early next morning his bowsprit would be pointed for old england he had had enough of these robber-haunted seas ever since he had left maracaibo upon the main with his full lading of sugar and red pepper he had winced at every topsail which glimmered over the violent edge of the tropical sea he had coasted up the windward islands touching here and there and assailed continually by stories of villainy and outrage captain sharkey of the twenty-gun pirate bark happy delivery had passed down the coast and had littered it with gutted vessels and with murdered men dreadful anecdotes were current of his grim pleasantries and his inflexible ferocity from the bahamas to the main his coal-black bark with the ambiguous name had been freighted with death and many things which were worse than death so nervous was captain scarrow with his new full-rigged ship and her full and valuable lading that he struck out to the west as far as bird's island to be out of the usual track of commerce and yet even in these solitary waters he had been unable to shake off sinister traces of captain sharkey one morning they had raised a single skiff adrift among the face of the ocean. Its only occupant was a delirious seaman, who yelled hoarsely as they hoisted him aboard, and showed a dried-up tongue like a black and wrinkled fungus at the back of his mouth. Water and nursing soon transformed him into the strongest and smartest sailor on the ship. He was from Marblehead in New England, it seemed, and was the sole survivor of a schooner which had been scudded by the dreadful Sharky. For a week, Hiram Evanson, for that was his name, had been adrift beneath a tropical sun, Sharkey had ordered the mangled remains of the late captain to be thrown into the boat as provisions for the voyage, but the seamen had at once committed them to the deep, lest the temptation should be more than he can bear. 
He had lived upon his own huge frame, until at the last moment the morning star had found him in that madness which is a precursor of such a death. It was no bad find for Captain Scarrow, for, with a short-handed crew, such a seaman as this big New Englander was a prize worth having. He vowed that he was the only man who Captain Sharkey had ever placed under an obligation. Now that they lay under the guns of the Bastere, all danger from the pirate was at an end, and yet the thought of him lay heavily upon the seaman's mind as he watched the agent's boat shooting out from the custom-house key. "'I'll lay you wager, Morgan,' said he to the first mate, "'that the agent will speak of Sharkey in the first hundred words that pass his lips.' "'Well, Captain, I'll have you a silver dollar and chance it,' said the rough old Bristol man beside him. The negro rowers shot the boat alongside, and the linen-clad steersman sprang up the ladder. "'Welcome, Captain Scarrow!' he cried. "'Have you heard about Sharkey?' The captain grinned at his mate. "'What devilry has he been up to now?' he asked. "'Devilry? You've not heard, then. Why, we've got him safe under lock and key here at Bastere. He was tried last Wednesday, and he's to be hanged tomorrow morning.' Captain and mate gave a shout of joy, which an instant later was taken up by the crew. Discipline was forgotten as they scrambled up through the break of the poop to hear the news. The New Englander was in front of them with a radiant face turned up to heaven, for he came of Puritan stock. "'Sharky to be hanged!' he cried. "'You don't know, Master Agent, if they lack a hangman, do you?' "'Stand back!' cried the mate, whose outraged sense of discipline was even stronger than his interest at the news. "'I'll pay that dollar, Captain Scarrow, with the lightest heart that I ever paid a wager yet.' "'How came the villain to be taken?' Why, as to that, he became more than his own comrades could abide, and they took such a horror of him that they would not have him on the ship, so they marooned him upon a little mangles to the south of the Mysteriosa Bank, and there he was found by a portobello trader who brought him in. There was talk of sending him to Jamaica to be tried, but our good little governor, Sir Charles Eumann, would not hear of it. He's my meat, he said, and I claim the cooking of it. If you can stay till tomorrow morning at ten, you'll see the joint swinging. I wish I could, said the captain wistfully but I am sadly behind time now. I should start with the evening tide. That you can't do, said the agent with decision. The governor is going back with you. The governor? Yes. He's had a dispatch from government to return without delay. The flyboat that brought it has gone on to Virginia, so Sir Charles has been waiting for you, as I told him you were due before the rains. Well, well, cried the captain in some perplexity. I'm a plain seaman, and I don't know much of governors and baronets and their ways. I don't remember if I ever had so much as spoke to one. But if it's in King George's service, and he asks a cast of the Morning Star as far as London, I'll do what I can for him. There's my own cabin he can have, and welcome. As to the cooking, it's Lobscoose and Salmagundi six days in a week, but he can bring his own cook aboard with him if he thinks our galley is too rough for his taste. You need not trouble your mind, Captain Scarrow, said the agent. Sir Charles is in weak health just now, only clear of a quartan egg, and is likely he will keep his cabin most of the voyage. Dr. LaRue said he would have sunk had the hanging of Sharky not put fresh life into him. He has a great spirit in him, though, and you must not blame him if he's somewhat short in his speech. He may say what he likes and do what he likes as long as he does not come athwart my house when I'm working the ship, said the captain. He's the governor of St. Kitts, but I am governor of the Morning Star. And by his leave I must weigh with the first tide, for I owe a duty to my employer, just as he does, King George. He can scarce be ready for tonight, for he has many things to set in order before he leaves. The early morning tide, then. Very good. I shall send his things aboard tonight, and he will follow them tomorrow, early if I can prevail him upon leaving St. Kitts without seeing Sharky do the rogue's hornpipe. His own orders were instant, so it may be that he will come at once. It is likely that Dr. Larousse may attend him upon the journey. Left to themselves, the captain and mate made the best preparations which they could for their illustrious passenger. 
The largest cabin was turned out and adorned in his honor, and orders were given by which barrels of fruit and some cases of wine should be brought off to vary the plain food of an ocean-going trader. In the evening, the governor's baggage began to arrive. Great iron-bound ant-proof trunks and official tin packing cases, with other strange-shaped packages which suggested the cocked hat or the sword within. And then there came a note with a heroic device upon the big red seal to say that Sir Charles Ewan made his compliments to Captain Scarrow, and that he had hoped to be with him in the morning as early as his duties and his infirmities would permit. He was as good as his word, for the first gray of dawn had actually begun to deepen into pink when he was brought alongside and climbed with some difficulty up the ladder. The captain had heard the governor was an eccentric, but he was hardly prepared for the curious figure who came limping feebly up down upon his quarter-deck, his steps supported by a thick bamboo cane. He wore a Romilese wig, all twisted into little tails like a poodle's coat, and cut so low across the brow that the large green glasses which he covered his eyes looked as if they were hung from it. A fierce beak of a nose, very long and very thin, cut the air in front of him. His egg had caused him to swathe his throat and chin with a broad linen cravat, and he wore a loose damask powdering gown, secured by a cord around the waist. As he advanced, he carried his masterful nose high in the air, but his head turned slowly from side to side in the helpless manner of the purblind, and he called in a high, querulous voice for the captain. "'You have my things?' he asked. "'Yes, Sir Charles. "'Have you wine aboard?' I've ordered five cases, sir. And tobacco? There's a keg of Trinidad. You play a hand at piquet? Passably well, sir. Then up anchor and to sea. There was a fresh westerly wind, and so by the time the sun was fairly through the morning haze, the ship was hauled down from the islands. The decrepit governor still limped the deck, with one guiding hand upon the quarter rail. You are in the government service now, Captain, said he. They are counting the days till I come to Westminster, I promise you. Have you all she will carry? Every inch, Sir Charles. Keep her so if you blow the sails out of her. I fear, Captain Scarrow, that you will find a blind and broken man a poor companion for your voyage. I am honored in enjoying your excellency's society, said the captain, but I am sorry that your eyes should be so afflicted. Yes, indeed, it is a cursed glare of the sun of the white streets of Bastere which has gone far to burn them out. I had also heard that you had been plagued by a quartan egg. Yes, I had a pyroxy which has reduced me much. We had set aside a cabin for your surgeon. Ah, the rascal! There is no budging him, for he has a snug business amongst the merchants. But hark! He raised his ring-covered hand in the air. From far astern there came the low, deep thunder of a cannon. It is from the island, cried the captain in astonishment. Can it be a signal for us to pull back? The governor laughed. You have heard that Sharky, the pirate, is to be hanged this morning. I ordered the batteries to salute when the rascal was kicking his last so I might know of it out at sea. There's an end of Sharky. There's an end of Sharky, cried the captain, and the crew took up the cry, and they gathered in little knots upon the deck, and stared back the low purple line of the vanishing land. It was a cheering omen for their start across the western ocean, and the invalid governor found himself a popular man on board, for it was generally understood that but for his insistence upon an immediate trial and sentence, the villain might have played upon some more venal judge and so escape. At dinner that day Sir Charles gave many anecdotes of the deceased pirate, and so affable was he, and so skillful in adapting his conversation to men of lower degree, that captain, mate, and governor smoked their long pipes and drank their claret as three good comrades should. And what figure did Sharky cut in the dock? asked the captain. He is a man of some presence, said the governor. I had always understood that he was an ugly, sneering devil, remarked the mate. "'Well, I dare say that he could look ugly upon occasions,' said the governor. 
I have heard a new Bedford whaleman say that he could not forget his eyes, said Captain Scarrow. They were the lightest filmy blue, with red-rimmed lids. Was this not so, Sir Charles? Alas, my own eyes will not permit me to know much of those of others, but I remember now that the adjutant general said that he had such an eye as you described, and added that the jury were so foolish as to be visibly discomposed when it was turned upon them. It is well for them that he is dead, for he was a man who would never forget an injury, and if he had laid his hands upon any one of them, he would have stuffed him with straw and hung him for a figurehead. The idea seemed to amuse the governor, for it broke suddenly into a high, neighing laugh, and the two seamen laughed also, but not so heartily, for they remembered that Sharkey was not the last pirate who sailed the western seas, and that his grotesque fate might come to be their own. Another bottle was broached to drink to a pleasant voyage, and the governor would drink one other on top of it, so the seamen were glad at last to stagger off, the one to his watch, the other to his bunk. But when after his four-hour spell the mate came down again, he was made to see the governor in his Romilly's wig, his glasses, and his powdering gown still seated sedately at the lonely table with his reeking pipe and six black bottles by his side. "'I have drunk with the governor of St. Kitts when he was sick, said he, and God forbid that I should ever keep pace with him when he is well.' The voyage of the Morning Star was a successful one, and in about three weeks she was at the mouth of the British Channel. From the first day, the infirm governor had begun to recover his strength, and before they were halfway across the Atlantic he was, save only for his eyes, as well as any man upon the ship. Those who uphold the nourishing qualities of wine might point to him in triumph, for never a night passed that he did not repeat the performance of his first one. And yet he would be out on the open deck in the early morning as fresh and brisk as the best of them, peering upon his weak eyes and asking questions about the sails and the rigging, for he was anxious to learn the ways of the sea. And he made up for the deficiency of his eyes by obtaining leave from the captain that the New England seaman, he who had been cast away in the boat, should lead them about, and above all that that he should sit beside him when he played cards and count the number of pips, for unaided he could not tell the king from the knave. It was natural that this Evanson should do the governor's willing service, since the one was the victim of the vile Sharkey, and the other was his avenger. One could see that it was a pleasure of the big American to lend his arm to the invalid, and at night he would stand with all respect behind his chair in the cabin, and lay his great stub-nailed forefinger upon a card which he should play. Between them there was little in the pockets either of Captain Scarrow or of Morgan, the first mate, by the time they sighted the lizard and it was not long before they found that all they had heard of the high temper of Sir Charles Ewan fell short of the mark. At a sigh of opposition of a word of argument his chin would shoot out from his cravat, his masterful nose would be cocked at a higher and more insolent angle, and his bamboo cane would whistle up over his shoulder. He cracked it once over the head of the carpenter and the man had accidentally jostled him upon the deck. Once, too, when there was some grumbling and talk of a mutiny over the state of the provisions, he was of opinion that they should not wait for the dogs to rise but that they should march forward and set upon them until they trounced the devilment out of them. "'Give me a knife and a bucket,' he cried with an oath, and could hardly be withheld from setting forth alone to deal with the spokesman of the seamen. Captain Scarrow had to remind him that he might be only answerable to himself at St. Kitts. Killing became murder upon the high seas. In politics he was, as become his official position, a stout prop of the House of Hanover, and he swore in his cups that he had never met a Jacobite without pistoling him where he stood. And for all his vaporing and his violence, he was so good a companion with such a stream of strange anecdote and reminiscence that Scarrow Morgan had never known a voyage pass so pleasantly. And then at length came the last day, when, after passing the island, they had struck land again at the high white cliffs of Beachy Head. As evening fell, the ship lay rolling in an oily calm, a league off the Winchelsea, with the long, dark snout of Dungeness jutting out from front of her. 
Next morning they would pick up their pilot at the foreland, and Sir Charles might meet the king's ministers at Westminster before the evening. The boatswain had the watch, and the three friends were met for the last turn of cards in the cabin, the faithful American still serving as eyes to the governor. There was a good stake upon the table, for the sailors had tried on their last night to win their losses back from the passenger. Suddenly he threw his cards down and swept all the money into the pocket of his long-flapped silken waistcoat. "'The game's mine,' said he. "'Heh, Sir Charles, not so fast,' cried Captain Scarrow. "'You've not played out the hand, and we are not the losers.' "'Sink you for a liar,' said the governor. "'I tell you I have played out the hand, and that you are a loser.' He whipped off his wig and glasses as he spoke, and there was a high, bald forehead and a pair of shifty blue eyes with red rims of a bull terrier. "'Good God!' cried the mate. "'It's Sharky!' The two sailors sprang to their seats, but the big American castaway had put his huge back against the cabin door, and he held a pistol in each of his hands. The passenger had also laid a pistol upon the scattered cards in front of him, and he burst into a high, neighing laugh. "'Captain Sharkey is the name, gentlemen,' said he, "'and this is Roaring Ned Galloway, the quartermaster of Happy Delivery. We made it hot, so they marooned us, me on a dry Tortuga quay, and him on an oarless boat. You dogs, you poor, fond, water-hearted dogs, we hold you at the end of our pistols.' "'You may shoot, or you may not,' cried Scarrow, striking his hand upon the breast of his frieze jacket. "'If it's my last breath, Sharky, I'll tell you that you're a bloody rogue and a miscreant, with a halter and hellfire in store for you.' "'There's a man of spirit, and one of my own kidney, and he's going to make a very pretty death of it,' cried Sharky. "'There's no one aft save a man at the wheel, so you may keep your breath, for you'll need it soon. "'Is the dinghy astern, Ned?' "'Aye, aye, Captain.' "'And the other boats scuttled?' "'I board them all in three places.' Then we shall have to leave you, Captain Scarrow. You look as if you hadn't quite got your bearings. Is there anything you'd like to ask me? I believe you're the devil himself, cried the captain. Where is the governor of St. Kitts? When last I saw him, his excellent was in bed with his throat cut. When I broke prison, I learned from my friends, for Captain Sharkey has those who love him in every port, that the governor was starting for Europe under a master who had never seen him. I climbed his veranda and I paid him a little debt that I owed him. Then I came aboard you with such of the things that I had need of and a pair of glasses to hide these tell-tale eyes of mine, and I have ruffled it as a governor should. Now, Ned, you can get to work upon them. Help! Help! Watch! Ahoy! yelled the mate, but the butt of the pirate's pistol crashed down on his head, and he dropped like a pithed ox. Scarrow rushed for the door, but the sentinel clapped his hand over his mouth and threw his other arm around his waist. No use, Master Scarrow, said Sharky. Let us see you down on your knees and beg for your life. I'll see you, cried Scarrow, shaking his mouth clear. Twist his arm around, Ned, now will you? No, not if he twist it off. Put an inch of your knife into him. You may put six inches, and then I won't. Sink me, but I like his spirit, cried Sharky. Put your knife in your pocket, Ned. You've saved your skin, Scarrow. And it's a pity so stout a man should not take to the only trade where a pretty fellow can pick up a living. You must be born for no common death, Scarrow, since you have lain at my mercy and lived to tell the tale. Time up, Ned. To the stove, Captain? Tut, tut, there's a fire in the stove. None of your rover tricks, Ned Galloway, unless they are called for. Or I'll let you know which of us two is captain and which is quartermaster. Make him fast at the table. Nay, I thought you meant to roast him, said the quartermaster. You surely do not mean to let him go. If you and I were marooned on the Bahama Cay, Ned Galloway, it is still for me to command and for you to obey. Sink you for a villain. Do you dare to question my orders? Nay, nay, Captain Sharkey, not so hot, sir, said the quartermaster and lifting Scarrow like a child, he laid him on the table. With quick dexterity of a seaman, he tied his spread-eagled hands and feet with a rope which was passed underneath, and gagged him securely with a long cravat which was used to adorn the chin 
of the governor of St. Kitts. "'Now, Captain Scarrow, we must take our leave of you,' said the pirate. "'If I had half a dozen of my brisk boys on my heels, I should have had your cargo and your ship. But Roaring Ned cannot find a foremast hand with the spirit of a mouse. I see there are some small craft about, so we shall get one of them. When Captain Sharkey has a boat, and he can get a smack, when he has a smack he can get a brig, when he has a brig he can get a bark, and when he has a bark he'll soon have a full-rigged ship of his own. So make haste into London town, or I may be back after all for the morning star. Captain Scarrow heard the key turn in the lock as it left the cabin. Then, as he strained at his bonds, he heard their footsteps pass up the companion and along the quarter-deck to where the dinghy hung in the stern. Then, still struggling and writhing, he heard the creak of the falls and a splash of the boat in the water. In a mad fury he tore and dragged at his ropes until at last, with flayed wrists and ankles, he rolled from the table, sprang over the dead mate, kicked his way through the closed door, and rushed hatless onto the deck. "'Ahoy! Peterson! Armitage! Wilson!' he screamed. "'Cutlasses and pistols! Clear away the longboat! Clear away the gig! Sharky, the pirate, is in yonder dinghy! Whistle up the larboard watch bosun and tumble into the boats all hands!' Down splashed the longboats and down splashed the gig, but in the instant the coxswains and crew were swarming up the falls of the deck once more. "'The boats are scuttled,' they cried. "'They are leaking like a sieve!' The captain gave a bitter curse. He had been beaten and outwitted at every point. Above was a cloudless starlit sky, with neither wind nor the promise of it. The sails flapped idly in the moonlight. Far away lay a fishing smack, with the men clustered over the net. Close to them was the little dinghy, dipping and lifting over the shining swell. "'They are dead men,' cried the captain. "'A shout altogether, boys, to warn them of their danger.' But it was too late. At that very moment the dinghy shot into the shadow of the fishing boat. There were two rapid pistol shots, a scream, and then another pistol shot, followed by silence. The clustering fishermen had disappeared, and then, suddenly, as the first puffs of a land breeze came out of the Sussex shore, the boom swung out, the mainsail filled, and the little craft crept out with their nose to the Atlantic. End of chapter 1